Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Awesome. Hey guys, I'm here with James Kovacevic. James is the host of Rooted in Reliability podcast. If you guys don't listen to that one, go and listen to his. It's available again on iTunes, Stitcher. Um, it's also available on ascendoreliability.com. Uh, James has been running the podcast for about a couple years now. And so he's got a ton of episodes out there. They bring a ton of value. Um, so get on that right now. Next thing, he's a principal instructor at Eurodicio. And before that, the founder of High Performance Reliability. James, is there anything that you want to tell them that you do? Uh, no, you. thank you for the great intro. Um, aside from that, I've been involved in maintenance and reliability for about the past 15 years in one function or another, starting off as an electrician on the floor, maintenance supervisor, then the maintenance planner, and kind of working my way up from there. So when I talk about reliability, it's coming from all the different aspects that I've been involved with throughout those 15 years. So he's got a great perspective on the world. And so, I, I mean, first off, thanks for coming on, James. Hey, it's a pleasure to be here. Always excited to uh, jump on someone else's podcast and not just uh, host my own. <laughs> now you're the expert. You're, I'm going to ask, I'm going to put you to the screws, right? Hey, perfect. So uh, I saw you give a talk at the SMRP symposium uh, with Sean Eisenhower about preventative maintenance optimizations. So, I mean, when I, I, I didn't actually see the talk, I think I was presenting at the same time, so I missed it. So what were you, what were you really talking about? So what we were talking about there is with PM optimization, you might hear that term thrown around a lot and it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people. But what we were focused on throughout that four hour workshop is a simple way to go through your PMs, identify the non-value added activities, remove those. And then some of the tools you can use to vet those non-value added activities to make sure in fact they are not value added. Um, and additional tools to add failure mode based activities into your PM program so that they are in fact adding value. Now, one of the things I want to clarify when I mention preventative maintenance optimization or PM optimization is it's not just your traditional time-based replacements, time-based restorations tasks. When I talk about PMO, it is 
the whole aspect that includes predictive maintenance, lubrication, preventative maintenance, replacements, and so on and so forth. It's all of those things under one umbrella. Okay. So that kind of sounds like a, like an RCM. So what's the, what's the difference really between PMO and RCM? So the way I look at PM optimization, it is reviewing your existing maintenance activities, your, your existing preventative maintenance, predictive maintenance activities to clean them up, to make them value added, to make sure they are consistent and repeatable. And when I say consistent and repeatable, it's about making sure that whoever's doing that inspection task, whether it's a, a first year mechanic on night shift or a 30 year veteran on day shift, that they're checking for the same things. They're reviewing the same things and we're getting consistent, repeatable results from those. RCM, very great approach. Huge, I'm a huge advocate of RCM, but to me, not all the organizations have time to do RCM on everything. So while RCM is good for, you know, the top assets, the top critical assets right off the bat, maybe moving into some of the medium criticality assets, PM optimization is a good way to clean up your existing program quickly and also to review some of those manufacturer recommendations for those lower criticality assets to make sure they're actually going to make a difference for your organization. See, I just want to jump on to something that you you mentioned was in terms of having the repeatable work done. That is something so key. I, I'm a firm believer of, you know, what I call precision maintenance is is one of the reasons why we see a lot of infant mortality failures is just that people are doing the work differently. Exactly. And when I talk, when we go into PM optimization as part of the process, after you identify, you know, your failure mode based activities and your inspections you're going to be doing for those, you need to have a procedure behind it that enables everyone to do it the same way and do it consistently and get the same results. And that's critical. It prevents those defects, but it also makes sure that when we say we're inspecting a particular piece of an equipment for a failure mode, that we can actually catch it and we can trend it to see how critical is that defect? Is that defect getting worse? And so on and so forth. Without those procedures and that consistent repeatability, you won't be able to do that. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's kind of jump back to first first uh, principles. So when we're talking about PM optimization, what what are we, like, what is it? So the best way I can sum it up is you're removing the non-value added activities from your PMs because let's face it, over time, the PM programs have probably grown. PMs sometimes become a, a safety blanket, if you will. I'll give you an example of that. So in the morning meeting, you know, we experience a failure at the previous night, operations or a site manager or a operations director or someone like that will say, do we have a PM for that? Put one in. Well, over time that happens regularly and your PM program gets to be very big, but it's usually full of non-value added activities because you may be forced to put in a PM, a PM inspection that isn't failure mode based that no matter what you do, that failure that you put that check in for won't be able to be detected. So we're inflating our PM program with that non-value added activities. Same thing kind of exists with some manufacturer recommendations. They might not be value added. So PM optimization is all about cutting out all that non-value added activity, making sure that what we do have and do keep 
is failure mode based and then making sure it's repeatable and consistent regardless who ex- who executes that inspection. So just the benefits of the of doing a PMO is really you're just going to be able to do your PMs more efficiently and effectively. Is there any other benefits that I missed? Those are two main ones. We're going to be more efficient with our PMs. We're going to be more effective with our PMs. The other piece behind this is, and going back to the procedure piece, is you start to build a knowledge management uh, library or a knowledge management program. Because you're able to capture the knowledge of your senior technicians and develop good procedures, repeatable procedures, you can start transferring knowledge to your junior staff. So as newer staff come on, they can much quick, they can get up to speed quicker and are able to execute those PMs to the same level of accuracy and repeatability as some of those senior technicians. No, that sounds great. Uh, so what is the process of doing a PM optimization? So first off, you have to select what assets are we going to do this on? So that may be looking at asset criticality and focusing on your higher criticality assets. It may be looking at downtime and looking at what assets have the most downtime, yet a lot of PMs. So you first have to select that asset. Once you select that asset, then you're going to do a few things. You're going to look at some data. You're going to get work order data. Um, You want to look at time spent on PMs, time spent on corrective, time spent on breakdowns. You might look at work order count spent on PMs, corrective, or breakdowns. You're going to get those sorts of things together. Then you got to actually break out those PMs. And one of the things you want to look at is what task, or for each one of these inspection tasks, is it failure mode based? Is it subjective or is it quantitative? If it's subjective, you know, inspect belt for wear, for example, are we going to get repeatable results on that? Probably not. So that's something we want to move to quantitative if possible. And if not, and it has to say subjective, we're going to look at something where we're going to use pictures or examples of what is acceptable, what is slightly worn, what is severely worn, and so on and so forth. So we can start to figure out and categorize where those subjective inspections are in our PF curve, if you will. Now, how we go about doing that, there's quite a few different tools. We might use a failure mode effect criticality analysis to help determine if it's failure mode based, identify things that are not on the PM that should be, um, and also to identify things that may need to be removed. There's also logic trees that we that we use. And essentially, it's a series of questions that you ask for every single inspection on your or every single activity on your PM that lets you know what may, what you should be doing. Do we remove it? Do we need to just redesign it? And when I say redesign, it's do we have a proper procedure? Do we have the criteria? So on and so forth. Is this something we can move to operator asset care? And so on and so forth. So there's a logic tree as well that'll help you identify what you should be doing for each one of these specific tasks. Typically, how long does doing, let's say we picked one, you know, one gearbox in the plant. How long would doing a PM optimization on that take? Assuming that everyone in the PM optimization has an understanding of failure modes, you know, the failure curves, um, the PF curve, the PF interval, stuff like that, assuming they have that basic knowledge, if it's a simple gearbox, um, you know, you're talking maybe a couple hours to do the analysis. There's also some follow-up work after that where you have to actually write the procedures, 
you know, you may change your spare parts strategy, stuff like that. But the actual analysis piece, you know, one to two hours for a simple small gearbox like that. So when we talk about that analysis piece, what do we, do we need other people in the room? What kind of people, what roles do we need? Yeah, ideally, like most reliability programs, we have a few people in the room. It's not a planner or a reliability engineer doing this um, by themselves. We want to have, you know, the technician that's going to be doing the work or typically does the work. You know, maybe a reliability engineer if the organization has one. Someone from operations, because they may know things that come up that they fix quickly or they fix without involving maintenance that we that are being missed on a PM that could actually be prevented. You know, we may have a planner because they're going to be helping to write the job procedures. They're the ones who are going to be making the changes in the CMMS. We may have a maintenance supervisor who brings some experience as well. So we want that cross-functional group in there um, to start working through whether it's you know a failure mode effect analysis or that logic tree as a group. So those logic trees, are those an erudicio tool or are you able to share those with us? It is an erudicio tool, but let me see if I can get one out so it's available. I have seen more than one or two on the internet as well, uh, but let me see if I can get the erudicio one. Yeah, even if you just have one or a link to one, we'll we'll throw it in the show notes and definitely would would love to have that. But again, like if anyone's listening and you guys want a PMO, um, you're well. Where can they email you, James? Yes, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn, uh, my email address as well as J K O V A C E V I C at iridicio.com. Um, either one, LinkedIn, email, you can get a hold of me quickly and we can talk about PMO. Perfect. And so moving on. So let's look at PMOs. So what should we do PMOs on? So we should do preventive maintenance on those, you know, high cost of maintenance assets, those critical assets, or those assets that are seeing a lot of failures yet having an intensive maintenance program. That's where you want to focus. And so... If we're looking at those high cost pieces of equipment, how do we know that a PMO would be beneficial? All right. So there's a few ways to look at that. There's a rule, there's a rule of thumb. It's called the six to one rule. And it's essentially says that for every six inspections, you should be finding at least one defect. So one of the ways you can do this is look at how many PM work orders you have in your system. And how many follow-ups from preventative maintenance or predictive maintenance activities do you get? If you're not getting at least one for every six inspections, that's a trigger that maybe our frequency is not correct, or we're not being prescriptive enough in our PMs or repeatable enough in our PMs to get the right, to get those follow-ups. Or maybe we have non-value-added activities that we're not looking at the right things. And and that pre-work, James, if they... Like, let's say someone calls you and asks you for a preventative maintenance optimization. Are you doing the pre-work or are they doing the pre-work? Well, it it can go either way. Um, if they've done this analysis and looked at, you know, the six to one rule, which is still a rule of thumb. Um, if they've looked at that, they've still seen a lot of consistent failures on equipment, you know, then they can do that ahead of time to kind of help us focus where we're going to be going, um, what assets, what preventive maintenance inspections they want us to do, that sort of thing. But if not, then we can definitely take a look at, 
you know, asset history, figure out what assets would probably benefit the most from it and so on and so forth and go from there. So we can do it either way. You know, organizations can have some of that upfront pre-work done, or they can ask us to do that as well to help focus that activity, if you will. And so you mentioned a little bit about implementing the findings of a PMO. And like I talked to Nancy Regan about implementing the findings of RCM a few episodes ago. And I think that this is one of the most critical pieces to any reliability initiative. How do you implement the P- the findings of a PMO successfully? Well, I think it depends on where the organization is in its journey in itself. So if we're working, if we're just starting, you know, PM optimization and this organization has never used procedure-based maintenance with good detailed instructions and criteria for inspections, pass-fail criteria, stuff like that. One of the things we may do is after we write that first procedure, instead of printing that work order and that inspection procedure on white paper, like you normally would every other work order, we may print it on bright pink or bright green or something like that and explain to the text, if you see a green piece of paper, that's because we went through and provided a proper procedure on how to do this PM. What we don't want to do is just print it on white paper. And you know, for the past 20 years, the texts have been conditioned not to read the procedures. We don't want to just put that out there and hopefully they read it. So we're going to call it out with a different piece of paper or something like that. Um, But the key thing is, is we need to write that procedure once we've done the PMO, get it set up in the CMS, get it out there, and then coach to that procedure. So if someone's doing it and they're not actually following the procedure, we're going to have that coaching conversation to make sure they're on board. If they're finding issues with it, yeah, no problem. We'll go through and update that procedure based on some feedback from experienced technicians and so on and so forth. But the first piece is, is to get the procedure out there and start coaching and making people aware of it and making sure they're following it so we can start to improve it over time. So that's a that's a key aspect to any kind of a reliability aspect uh, project is, you know, coaching and really just interacting with the people who are doing the work. Absolutely. You need, it's a, it's the change management piece, right? If you follow the change management model, ADCAR, um, first you got to create some awareness, right? What are we doing? Why are we doing it? That sort of thing. Then we're going to move on to the desire piece. And we want to explain to the technicians, why is this procedure-based maintenance uh, better? How is this going to make it, make their day easier? You want to focus on the what's in it for me part with that desire. Once we have that, then we want to do the knowledge piece. And that might be some toolbox talks around procedure-based maintenance, maybe some criteria on how we're going to inspect, you know, V-belts moving forward, something like that. But we want to create, provide some knowledge there. Once we have that, then we're going to move to the ability piece. And that's where they're actually going to go use these new procedures for preventive maintenance inspections or predictive maintenance inspections or whatever the case may be. And that's where the coaching comes in. We're giving them the ability to execute the procedure and we're going to coach to that procedure. And then there's the reinforcement piece, which is the final part of the ADCAR model. And that's making sure that we are reinforcing the use of these. And that can be done through, you know, KPIs, um, incentives, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of different ways to handle that reinforcement piece. We want to make sure we do that to ensure it is sustained long-term as well. So let's dig into that a little bit more. Um, 
we kind of talked about how long to do a PMO and it was like, you know, maybe a day, but how long does that coaching and reinforcement process take? Well, it, once it's, it depends. And I say that because there's a lot of factors that go into that. Um, if your department is going through a lot of other changes at that current period in time, there's going to be less capacity for change. Therefore, you know, this might take a little longer to implement because they're dealing with so much other change. You also have to look at the historical performance that that organization has had with change. Is there a lot of flavor of the day, flavor of the month activities in the past? If so, there's going to be a lot more coaching, a lot more awareness and a building and all those things that are going to go in that need to be done to get this to be sustained. Um, If your organization doesn't have a lot of change going on at that current point in time, and they've had, you know, regular success in the past, then, you know, if you follow those steps, you can get this in place relatively quickly, or at least started quickly. Um, as long as you're identifying those new procedures, those new one point lessons on V belt inspections and so on and so forth, you can get those moving relatively quickly. Awesome. So can you give us an example of a PMO that you've done and kind of what the benefits or findings were? Yes, absolutely. So I'll give you an example from uh, one we did previously. And this was just essentially some basic work around centrifuges. Um, They were averaging about 60 minutes of planned downtime each week. And, you know, to do some basic inspections, basic lubrications, and then cleaning out strainers and so on and so forth. So we went through this, we identified a quite a few activities that were non-value added. So we removed those from the, from the equation. Then we also looked at, well, how can we make this better? And we used um, a SMED approach, if you will. Uh, SMED stands for single minute exchange of dyes. And we used that methodology to help identify what activities were being done internally that could be done externally and what activities could we convert from an internal to an external activity. Internal being it has to be done while the equipment's running versus external, uh, sorry, internal, which means it has to be done when the equipment is not running versus external, which means it can be done while the equipment is running. So we went through and did the evaluation, removed the non-failure mode based activities and inspections out of there. We converted some of the checks to operator based asset care. So, you know, looking at gauges, recording readings, trending pressure readings, stuff like that. Some of the other things we did after this as well as we provided some visual factory elements. So lubrication became a little bit simpler. Um, And we did a little bit of redesign for this one. And we were able to put in a secondary strainer so we could clean clean one while the equipment was still running. So we were able to create a little bit of redundancy there. But at the end, we were able to take that 60-minute PM that was typically finding, I'd say, one defect out of every 10 times it was done down to... 36 minutes with no downtime of the equipment. And we're able to drive that to about one thing being found about every six or seven times. That's a huge benefit. It was big. Um, This is a critical piece of equipment for the the organization. So we were able to pull 60 minutes of planned downtime each week away. And then also we're able to increase the effectiveness of that PM. So significant change, significant impact on the organization from this asset standpoint. Um, And it can be done relatively easily. 
um, this in, this particular instance only had, I think there's three or four of us in a room. We had the analysis done within a couple hours and we had the new procedures written and within a couple of days, we had to wait till we had a planned downtime event to go in and make those changes, put the redundant strainer in. But we were only talking, you know, maybe a thousand dollars in extra expenses to put in that redundant strainer so we didn't have to shut it down anymore. Um, so not a huge amount of effort on our part, but the impact was very significant for the organization. Awesome. I'm sure that ROI was pretty quick. <laughs> yes, it was. So I wanted to ask you this question because I, I see, um, well, I'm sure you, you are around a lot of organizations that do PMOs. And so what's the common, most common mistake that you see people make when they're doing a PMO and how do we avoid it? Okay. So good question. The two common things I typically see is they still have, um, it's still not failure mode based when they're done. So check pump. Well, what are we looking for there? So check pump, we want to identify the different failure modes for that particular activity that we want to look at. So do we have a history of, you know, impeller wear or cavitation or something like that? And if so, then we want to develop a failure mode for, or identify the failure mode for each one of those and build an inspection task for that. Inspect pump does us no good because one mechanic may say, yes, the pump's still there, so we're good. Others will do a detailed inspection, right, and identify a lot of defects. So what we want to do is develop that failure mode-based criteria that is very specific to those failure modes we see or we anticipate could happen. So that's number one. Number two is they believe that is enough. They'll identify the four or five failure modes they want to check, and they'll leave it at that. But you need that procedure to make sure it's done consistently, it's done repeatedly, and so on and so forth. I'll give you an example of why that's important. So I was at an organization that had tabletop conveyors to transport bottles. Well, there was a PM that would say check condition of you know tabletop conveyor, uh, advise if needs to be replaced. Well, upon inspection, or shortly after arriving at that organization, we were still having a lot of tabletop problems, we'd have pieces that would break off or wear out or whatever the case was during operations. So we started looking at it and depending on who did it, they did it very, very differently. So what we were able to do was create a go, no go gauge and have that mechanic check the thickness of that tabletop in about five different spots. And based on that, we would know if it was time to change because if it reached half its original thickness, then that's when we were starting to experience a lot of failures and so on and so forth. So by proceduralizing it, giving a basic tool with some pass fail criteria, we we're able to dramatically improve the effectiveness of that PM. But without that procedure, that wouldn't have been possible. So the two biggest mistakes, it's not failure mode based and there's no procedure to make sure it's executed consistently. Awesome. That is I mean, that's a super valuable tip. And, you know, thanks for, thanks for definitely sharing that one, James. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I mean, I, I know that it's sort of redundant, but we, w w do you have any other tips that, you know, people need to know when they're doing a PMO? Yeah. You got to have that cross-functional group, um, have, have, more than one person doing it. If you're just a reliability engineer or a planner, do it in 
isolation, it's not going to be as effective. You're also going to handicap yourself when it comes to implement the changes because no one else was involved, right? You want to create some ownership and you create that ownership by having people involved. So that's one thing. The other thing is PM optimization is not a one and done thing. If we make changes, before we make the changes, we want to measure our current performance, whether it's MTBF, whether it's, you know, the number of follow-ups we get from each PM inspection or so on and so forth. We want to measure our current performance. From there, we're going to make those changes. Then we want to check to see if we've had what experience or what changes have we experienced? Is it an increase in MTBF? Is it an increase in the number of follow-ups we're getting? Is it a decrease? And you want to start understanding those and asking the questions, why are we getting that? And then from there, you may want to iterate and improve again and again. And so if we were going to iterate, would we do this? Like, would we, would you recommend doing it on an annual basis, a couple of years or what's the, or just when our KPIs change? It would depend. So if there's a change to the operating context of the asset, then we would want to go through and make those changes then. So are we running it more frequently, less frequently? Are we running it differently? Maybe we have a different product or different raw materials. Changes like that may drive a needed change to our preventative maintenance program. Perfect. And so the last question I had here, and, and I, I've put this question in because a lot of people want to talk about it. Um, where do you see reliability going in the next, let's say, two to two to five years with the improvement of artificial intelligence, augmented reality, virtual reality, you know, the cloud, the IAOT, whatever else? Good question. Um, I have a slightly different opinion of this than some others in the industry. So I'm a firm believer that if you don't do the basics right, you can have all the data you want from IIoT and artificial intelligence. It won't mean nothing if you can't plan and schedule work, if you can't manage spare parts, if you can't do those things, it's not going to make a difference. Reason being is if you have a fancy cloud-based tool that tells you, okay, this failure is pending, it's going to happen in XYZ amount of time. If you can't get that notification, plan the work, order the parts, execute that work in a timely manner, it's a waste of time and effort um, because it will have already failed before you've been able to actually make the repair. The other thing is, is you have to continue to think in the basics of maintenance and reliability. You know, we can collect all this data, we can analyze all these trends, but if we're collecting this data, what failure mode is this linking to? Why are we measuring this, right? You can buy sensors for all kinds of things super cheap, but unless it's going to link to a measurable failure mode, why are we monitoring it? Why are we collecting that data? So I think there's, there needs to be a focus on the fundamentals first before you go to the new shiny object of IIoT or artificial intelligence and so on and so forth. Now for augmented reality, virtual reality, that I think is a little different. So augmented reality or virtual reality, they great for training, great for supplementing work instructions, um, assisting in troubleshooting. Those are all great things that can be done with those. And they're not replacing anything. They're just supplementing um, an existing training program or work procedures or so on and so, so, so forth. So I think those are very value added, although they are still relatively new and somewhat expensive. Um, I think as we see the cost come down, we'll see wider adoption with those. Yeah, absolutely. I, I 
to be honest, James, I know you said that it's it's controversial. I think a lot of people have that opinion um, with respect to the artificial intelligence and the IOT. Um, I mean, I do as well, and I actually do work in machine learning. I think there's a lot of benefit to it, but I do think that, um, especially you know, at a plant site, really a lot of the stuff that you're gonna come, a lot of the stuff that you're going to find, we're only looking at you know the data and the predictive quality of the data. We're not looking at why that failure happened in the first place. And I think a lot of that is on that precision maintenance side, or you could kind of tease it out using, uh, you know, like failure mode analysis to figure out what, you know, what does this data actually mean in terms of what what's failing versus just sending every sensor to the cloud and hoping that an AI will pick up patterns. Yep, exactly. You know, you have to have your asset hierarchy structured right. You have to have your fail, your PM's failure mode base. You have to do all these things to make IoT work, in my opinion, properly. If not, then we're just collecting a lot of data and spending money for something we're not really going to use at this point. So, But it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it, right? It's a new shiny tool. So that's why I think it, it's seen a lot of adoption and a lot of uh, gets a lot of press. Um, and I do believe it can make a significant difference for those that already have the fundamentals in place. For them, it will provide them huge benefits and a huge advantage. But if you don't have those foundations in place, I don't think it's going to help you. Absolutely. And so the last thing before we get you off here, James, is do you have anything to plug? Where can where can our listeners find Rooted in Reliability? Um, are you going on to any conferences? Yeah, absolutely. So anyone that has questions or wants to connect, uh, you can find me on LinkedIn as James Kovacevic. Um, Rooted in Reliability podcast has been around for over two years. I believe we're on episode 115 or 116 this week. It's released every Tuesday morning. Um, you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, and reliability.fm. Um, as for conferences, I will be at the upcoming main train conference in Ottawa in September, and I will be at the SMRP conference in Orlando in October. So I'm presenting a workshop at the main train on spares management. And then I have a workshop on how to implement a successful reliability workshop in Orlando at SMRP. And I also have a paper I'm presenting there on do you walk by poor reliability? And it's all about changing the culture of walking by examples of poor reliability and why it's accepted in some organizations. Awesome. I'd love to have you back to talk about those, James. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. Happy to jump on and have a conversation on some of these topics. Awesome. So everyone listening, go out um, wherever you're listening to this podcast subscribe to Rooted in Reliability, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project if you haven't. Um, also, if you want a one-minute reliability tip of the day, go out and subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day. This week, it will be episodes. It'll be some of the stuff that James talked about over this podcast, broken down into 45 to one-minute segments. Um also available on Amazon Alexa or Google Home to start your day off right. 
Uh, James, thank you for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. And we'll see you guys next week.